Well, today I'm welcomed by uh, Gregory Henselman. He's a, a great friend of mine, as well as a colleague and a fellow uh, mathematician. As far as uh, a mathematician is defined as someone who does math, because I don't know if I would necessarily consider myself at the, as the level of being a, a full-blown mathematician yet, but I'm a uh, mathematician in training. Um, so welcome to Math with Hans, um, the podcast where we can have a drink while we think about math. Um, so Gregory, why don't you introduce yourself? Hello. Uh, thanks so much for inviting me to be on your first podcast, Hans. Uh, it, it's a pleasure to be here. I think we have known each other, what, maybe five, six years now. I think that's correct. Um, so I think we first met um, while I was deciding whether or not to go to uh, the University of Pennsylvania to study uh, math. And you were um, finishing up your PhD there at the time. And I think I made a really good decision uh, for many reasons, but one of which is because I get to, got to meet uh, you and a lot of other uh, great people. And it was really fantastic for the group at Penn when you came. Um, yeah, I think we were lucky in a lot of ways with the people we got to spend time with while we've been there. And you are still there. Yeah, so I am um, I am finishing up my fifth year. Um, I'm not sure where the future holds for me. I'm in this sort of uh, awkward stage where um, there's some opportunities out there, but there's also so many more, uh, you know, things I want to do and papers I want to write with people out there. So it's hard to kind of make this decision on whether, you know, I want to keep staying a PhD student or whether I want to, you know, get a more, um, a job that's more uh, permanent or a postdoc or something like that. Right. And I think one thing people often don't realize is for these PhD students, you might be in a PhD program for five, six, seven years, and uh, you just can't make any plans at all until really close to the end of your last year, um, because a lot of the job opportunities and the places you might go don't exist yet uh, until right then, right when you're applying this five, six month window. Yeah, that's right. So um, one opportunity I'm looking at uh, just appeared because of a uh, National Science Foundation grant that was just issued maybe a month ago. So, um, but, you know, most opportunities don't really exist for traditional postdocs. Um, so for the uh, listeners uh, in the audience or um, to watch the show, uh, you know, after it's recorded that, you know, typically in... Uh, so Greg and I are, we're both um, in electrical engineering departments and we kind of function both as engineers and as mathematicians. And I think we'll get to that later. Um, but often um, if you want to remain uh, in an academic position, um, getting a postdoctoral fellowship or a postdoc, uh, which is sort of a short term research job at another institution is kind of the, um, kind of the standard practice on what to do after a PhD, unless you want to go into some kind of industry job. Right. And if you are the parent or the sibling of one of the people who's about to embark on this, your first reaction is often, what? You spend how long getting paid? Yeah, exactly. I think you cut off there, but um, yes, it's... Uh, it's very confusing for a lot of people that um, I'm around, including my um, my fiance and you know my parents that I've uh, spent all this time on the PhD, and uh, this is what I have to look forward to something that's only slightly you know better as far as the normal kind of metrics people use to describe um, you know various careers. It's only slightly better than you know what I'm already doing. I think we're having a little bit of a technical issue, but uh, can you hear me okay, Greg?
I think Greg muted himself. Oop. And now I'm back. Ah, uh, we're back. So, um, I think we can cut that out, you know, when I actually, uh, you know, publish this. So I think that's not an issue at all. Um, so we're, we were talking about how some of our, uh, you know, our loved ones, our family, our partners are, can be somewhat confused by the fact that, you know, after doing a PhD for like six plus years, then a postdoc is what we have to look forward to afterwards. Can you say anything more about that? Yeah, well, I, I wish there were, were anything to say. I think it's very distressing. I used to row um, on, on the river, actually, in, in Philadelphia. And uh, one thing that they always tell you is that in, in rowing, very often you'll have some people in the boat who are, you know, propelling the boat along, and then there will be a coxswain in the back who's saying what to do. And for the coxswain, uh, it can be one of the most nerve-wracking experiences for them versus anyone else in the boat when you tip over or when everything starts to go wrong, because they're the one person in the boat without an oar. They have no control. And I think our families feel like that a lot of the time. Um, they love you, they want you to succeed, and, uh, you know, they see that everything is hard, and <laughs> when, when they see you're about to go over that, you know, that cliff into the next whatever, uh, they can feel like they, they don't have any control, uh, especially when they hear that there aren't any plans, and there won't, won't be plans until a few months before it's time. Uh, so I, I think it's a journey for, for everybody, and you kind of have to support each other to get through it. I don't know, what, what has been your experience, Hans? Um, so, um, I don't want to name so many names, but uh, for example, my fiance, she's sometimes a little bit confused about, you know, why I want to remain in academia, given, um, you know, the climate in academia is changing. It's more difficult and more difficult to get tenure. In fact, in some states, tenure is no longer, no longer exists, or in some places it doesn't exist. Um, but, you know, I kind of think about being a mathematician as almost like being like a vocation and not necessarily a job. I don't know if you have anything to say as far as whether you agree with that or not. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that what it means to be a mathematician really varies a lot from person to person. Uh -huh. um, just like, you know, most things in life. Um, I was surprised to, to find, well, you know, uh, even, even what the day-to-day -day experience is like. Um, I know a lot of very successful research mathematicians uh, who get pure joy out of doing what they do every day. Uh, and I know a lot of uh, research mathematicians who probably do get a lot of joy out of it, but they don't express it. Um, and I had the chance to go to a, a lab not so long ago. It was uh, a, a neuroscience lab, combination of neuroscience and psychology. And everybody there was studying the way that the human brain learns math, usually at early stages of development between the ages of one and 10. Uh, and it was really interesting talking with them as a mathematician because, you know, we had limited overlap as far as interests in psychology versus math research. But one thing where we really did connect was just a pure love of math. And I learned some of my favorite ever math riddles from them. Uh -huh. uh, and I think we, everybody came away from that week. You know, we had gone in thinking that, oh, this is going to be a really productive research conversation. You know, Greg will learn some things that he'll take away, that he'll think about. They'll take some things away that they'll think about. I'm not sure anybody took away anything that they wanted to think about for that <laughs> uh, But, but uh, it was so much fun. Uh, and uh, I'm so glad I had the, the chance to share that experience with other people who were in a, a pretty different place in life. Um, and, uh, and in that sense, yeah, I think... You know, math is much more than uh, a career or something that you do. It's uh, it's something that you can really connect with people. Yeah, so I, I feel like I have a lot of friends that are not mathematicians, and I also have quite a few friends that are mathematicians. 
And I feel like our my friendship with my mathematicians is on this, um, not necessarily a deeper level, um, but we have something that we have in common um, that we share that I think so few people um, can really understand, especially if, um, you know, it's someone who works in, in your field. Um, so Greg and I, you know, um, work in similar areas of, I would say, I think I could comfortably say applied math. Um, and um, so one of my favorite things in math, period, um, Greg introduced me to, um, and this thing is called uh, lattice theory. Um, and that's sort of the uh, topic of this episode, the first uh, inaugural episode of Math with Hans on the uh, Colin app. Um, so do you want to tell me about um, how you first became interested in lattices? Ooh, that's a good question. How did I first become interested in lattices? Um, I got interested in lattices by way of something else. Somebody exposed me to something that I really, really liked, and they didn't tell me until later that it was a lattice. Uh, so I got really into something called matroid theory. Um, and matroids are great. They're probably the topic of a different episode. Um, but uh, their name reflects a little bit of what they are. They're kind of squirrely little objects, um, which are also kind of quirky um, and pretty, pretty fun and interesting to play around with. You don't see them every day. Um, but once you get to know them pretty well, you see them everywhere. Uh, and as I was working on my PhD, uh, I, uh, I came to, to see matroids in, in the stuff that I was doing. I said, oh, no, no, I think most of the stuff that everybody is doing is matroid theory, and they ought to know about it because matroids are great. Um, so I spent uh, years... Uh, working on matroid theory in, in our field, uh, which is called uh, algebraic topology, applied algebraic topology. Applied, and that's the applied is, uh, you know, makes us a very different community than the rest of the community. Um, but we'll, we might talk about that later or maybe a different episode. Anyways, Greg. That's right. So we, we have something in common with the matroids. We're a little quirky, a little bit kooky, uh, but very fun. Yes, that is definitely true. <laughs> uh, and I think it was uh, it was sometime after I graduated, and I had always known there was a connection between matroids and lattice theory. Uh, but uh, I was uh, actually giving a, a, a series of talks um, to some friends about matroids and what they meant and why it was worth learning a little bit about them. And uh, I needed to find a way to, uh, to share the ideas with them without taking too much time because nobody ever has enough time to really dive into something too deeply. At least it's pretty rare. Yeah. So I knew that there's this thing called a lattice, and a lot of people know what a lattice is. A lot of mathematicians have, even if they've never really thought about them before, they've at least heard the definition of a lattice. Um, and part of the reason that they've uh, seen the definition is that you don't need much to define a lattice besides a less than or equal to sign. Um, yeah. So if uh, and if you you know there there are lots of ways to compare different things. One way is to say one thing is bigger than another thing, um, and a lattice can be regarded as sort of uh, uh, a nice nicely ordered system for saying when one thing is bigger than another thing. Um, there, there are lots and lots of other ways to talk about what a lattice is, and, and they're important too. Uh, but if you can talk about some kind of reasonable world where you have a collection of objects, and some objects are bigger than other objects, um, then you might have the, the makings of a lattice. So I knew that this was a, a sort of a common point of contact with my friends. And we could, uh, we could come together on that, and that could be the starting place for, for where we'd have our conversations. Uh, so that's, that's where I started getting into lattice theory, and then I said, oh, okay, well, 
as it turns out, it's not just that these matroids are related to lattices. These matroids are lattices. Um, right. So, um, so there's some sort of result, and I don't know much about it, but you can view um, a matroid as a particular uh, lattice. Um, is that correct? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Every matroid out there uh, with, with some fine print um, is the same as a lattice with some, some special properties. So the, my friends, the matroids, were just a subset of a much bigger group of friends called the lattices. Right. And, uh, you know, for those listening, we're not joking. We, at least Greg and I, and a lot of others, we actually think of various mathematical ideas and objects um, as our friends. And that might seem like we're completely <laughs> insane and off the ball. But, you know, at, at some point, if you're, you know, sitting, you know, in your office or, you know, in your house, um, thinking about these things, and they bring you so much joy doing so, for whatever reason, um, then they kind of are your friends by definition, wouldn't you say? That's right. And, and at the, yeah, at, at the risk of sounding nuts, which is fine. Yeah, I think, you know, you can have a mathematical object be your friend as much as uh, a beloved, you know, old car can be your friend. Yeah, yeah. Um, or a, a tool that you work with or an instrument. Yeah. Yeah. An instrument. I like that a lot because um, I also, or at least, you know, growing up, I played music and, you know, I found a lot of joy um, and learning various pieces and, you know, revising how I interpret those pieces, etc. And I kind of view math in a similar way that, you know, seeing how things are put together and how, you know, overarching ideas in mathematics, how various things are related from, you know, one part of mathematics to another, like that in particular for me makes me, uh, brings me joy. But another thing I think that I really enjoy is communicating math um, that may seem really um, abstract and way out there um, to people who actually like want to use it, like to write a computer program or um, to model some kind of system or biological system, et cetera. Like I think communicating it from like the high level to like, uh, you know, people who get their hands dirty with, uh, with data and all that stuff is also something I really enjoy um, about math. But anyways, you were saying like, so you got into lattice theory via matroid theory, which uh, matroid theory is, um, we can think of in many ways, and I don't know nearly as much as Greg, but well, very few people know nearly, nearly as much as Greg, but I would say um, matroid theory can be thought of as the study of independence, what, what constitutes a set of things being independent. Is that, is that far off or is that pretty close to being correct? That's absolutely right. So there were, uh, matroid theory was invented at least twice. Um, by two different people who didn't know that the other one had invented it. Um, and the, one of the two inventors introduced the ideas in a paper called something like, and you shouldn't quote me on this, uh, the abstract properties of linear independence. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was a, a beautiful paper back in 1935. Uh, and no one, I think, had any idea at the time just how big it would get. It got real big by these days, uh, matroid theory is beyond just describing independent systems. It's used by computer scientists who use it to write algorithms. It's used by economists uh, to study the way that markets work. Uh, it's used by mathematicians to study the geometry of complex high-dimensional shapes. So uh, if I'm correct, it's, it's used in, um, which this relates to sort of the... Um the tech space and the, you know, app developing space is used to, uh, you know, tune advertisements, if I'm correct, that you have, can imagine a bunch of, you know, possibilities of ads to show uh, customers. And maybe there's some constraints on what kinds of ads you can show. And, you know, you can kind of view matrix theory as this sort of optimization 
Um, you know, it's a constraint that you might place on an optimization problem where you want to maximize the number of clicks based on the ads that you show a various group of people. That is absolutely possible. I don't know too much about it, but it certainly lies within the realm of, of what Matroids do. Matroids are really good at optimizing. And if you don't happen to know what optimizing means in, in a math context, uh, usually optimizing just means that you have a set of options and you want to pick the best one for you. Um, and that can, that can take lots and lots of different forms. Um, but certainly uh, one form that companies uh, will look for is choose the option that costs the least or uh, choose the option that brings in the, the greatest revenue or, I guess, in this context, you know, choose the option that maximizes clicks. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's how, you know, economists think of um, you know, everything we do is a matter of utility optimizing. But... If that were the case, maybe you and I wouldn't be a mathematician. So I think they're not quite right about about everything, those economists. <laughs> yeah, kind of a dismal science. Uh, so, Hans, I actually didn't know that you played an instrument. Can we go back to that just for, for a yeah, second? What did you play? To that. So um, in high school and also college for a little bit, um, I played uh, the bassoon, which... Um, Bassoon is a very peculiar instrument, so it's kind of like the oboe. It has uh, a double reed, so it's kind of two pieces of wood that are tied together, and you kind of buzz on it to make a noise. Um, but a bassoon is like a very long instrument, um, and it has kind of a deep, dark, kind of a you know tenor-type sound. Um, so I played the bassoon, and... Um, and I haven't played in a while, but it still sits in my uh, apartment, and I want to play it, but it's it's complicated, anyways. Um, yes, and Greg and I also have something in common, at least one thing in common. I think that is really uh, random or fortuitous um, that we both joined the same fraternity at different universities, which I thought was very interesting and funny. That's right. Um, and on, on top of this, Hans has done something that very few other people have, I think, as well as myself. You studied Latin in college, didn't you? Um, kind of. I took, I, I took at least one course in uh, Virgil. So I, I did study some classics. I'm certainly interested in classics. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so what, what we decided about this a long time ago, I think, is that Hans and I are essentially the same person. Right. <laughs> Which is, you know, makes sense why, you know, we're the first two people, you know, you know trying out an episode. And uh, as we discussed earlier, this is kind of a beta episode, but I hope it's going okay. I don't know. I'm having so a great time. Yeah, it's, it's been fun, that's for sure. Um, yeah, so I would say... Um, Oh, looks like we have a caller. I might take that. Okay. Who is the caller? Hey, guys. Yeah, I just want to encourage you. I think it's a great episode. Enjoying learning a little bit about math. And I wouldn't even think of it as a beta episode. I think it's great. Good. I, I'm oh, a, sweet. I appreciate, I appreciate the positive feedback. Hey, um, keep at it, guys. Welcome to yeah, episode so 1.0. 1.0, that's right. <laughs> so I guess I shared like um, how uh, Greg shared how he first um, you know discovered lattices, which uh, just to recap are um, these very beautiful ordered sets. So anything describing you know something being less than or uh, greater than something else, and um, this may not be something that's numerical. This could be something that's abstract. Um, so one set of things or words could be contained in another set. Um, or, you know, in, in Greg's case, the kind of lattices Greg you know, might think about a lot is you can think of uh, some kind of geometric space, um, you know, being contained in another. So you can think of a line being contained in a plane, uh, being contained in a uh, 
three-dimensional space, and you can think of different lines, and maybe some intersect, some don't. This is kind of all boils down, uh, not all of it, but most of this kind of thinking boils down to lattice theory. Um, so the first time I think I heard anything about lattices at all was at a talk. And as you might guess, uh, Greg was giving the talk. And uh, this was at um, this uh, peculiar uh, institute called the Institute for Advanced Study. Um, so it's this little um, kind of research campus um, that's not part of Princeton University, but it's adjacent to Princeton University. So we, um, we both were attending um, the seminar that met once a week, I think, and it, it, it met at a very strange time. It was, it was an evening seminar, so we you know, began talking about math at like, I don't know, like 6 p.m., and we finished about maybe 10, 10, 10 11 p.m. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. um, so I have a lot of fond memories. This was my very first year of uh, graduate school, and luckily, I brought my car out of Philadelphia. Uh. <laughs> um, so I, I was able to, A, which isn't that big of a deal, but A, get to go to these seminars. Um, it was a big deal, but even better was I got to drive uh, other people who didn't, you know, have a car or, you know, maybe didn't want to take the train because the train's a little tricky to get to, you know, from Philly to Princeton. It's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a hassle to do that. Um, so I got to drive uh, other people who are interested in coming to this seminar and, um, you know, sometimes there, sometimes back. And I got to tell you, I, you know, I'm got to know a lot of people a lot better, you know, being in the car and really recapping like all the crazy math that we heard, um, you know, on the way back. And I can remember doing that with you, Greg. Oh, that car was great. I have the best memories of those. Do you remember the, well, I, I think it might've happened a few times. There was that one uh, exit that we had to get to like leave the freeway and go into Philly and we missed it like four times in a row. <laughs> That's, I mean, you know, as, as Eric uh, in the audience knows, my driving skills are not the best, especially when I'm you know, preoccupied, you know, thinking about something else. Um, Your driving skills are unimpeachable, huh? <laughs> we all know that isn't true. We know um, that that was the best ever. I, I would not have reduced the number of twists and turns in that trip by one iota. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, but, yeah, so, uh, so the first time I heard uh, the word lattice... You know, not used, um, yeah, so some topic of confusion, uh, subject of confusion, is that lattices, um, you know, have at least two different connotations. One is sort of like uh, crystalline lattices or integer lattices, and, you know, the physicists love to study them, um, but we actually study things that are like, I guess they assume them, that they're more general than them, but they're kind of different subjects. Um, so if you think of a lattice that you see um, in a garden, uh, which kind of consists of uh, a bunch of wooden wooden rails that are like tethered together, um, that's kind of what you want to think about a lattice, but, but there's so many more, um, you know, more possibilities that you can imagine. Um, but the, the main thing is that there are these ordered structures, but they're not just ordered, right? They have these like algebraic side to them. You want to say something about that, Greg? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think it is a nice example, you know, a white lattice fence, because so many pictures of lattices um, look like a picture of a white lattice fence that someone has just taken a, a crowbar to. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> Space, space some things out and sort of packed some things in and cut, cut a few slats out. Um, but most of the time when you look at one of these things, it doesn't look like somebody's done violence to the fence. They've made something really beautiful out of it. Yeah. Um, 
And, and you're right, lettuces do have lots of, uh, of different sides. So if you have a lettuce, um, there's sort of a natural way to combine two elements. In fact, there, there are natural multiple different ways to combine uh, two elements. And in fact, you can, uh, you can kind of turn a lattice into something that looks a little like a number system where you have something that looks like addition and something that looks like multiplication, which means, of course, you have something that looks like numbers. Somehow you can take two of these things that look like numbers and you can do something that looks like multiply them, something that looks like add them together. Yep. Um, and it turns out that these are really, really useful things to do sometimes. Yeah, so um, oh, one area that lattice theory, I think comes up quite a bit, but people don't realize it. And I mean, certain people realize it, but most, you know, casual observers don't, is logic. Um, and, you know, I've been getting more and more into logic lately um, because, you know, under the hood, there's basically lattice theory is what's going on. Um, so if you imagine um, logic, um, you have, you know, the basic ingredients to, let's say, propositional logic. So this is the kind of logic, you know, you'd learn in a first course in logic or in high school or whatever, um, that you have these propositions. Um, so they're things like, um, I'm wearing a floral shirt. Um, and these propositions are either uh, true or false. Um, and there's really no kind of fuzziness or uh, intermediate values you can take. And of course, you can change this all and you know, generalize it so maybe there is a degree of, you know, truthiness about whether my short is floral. 60% floral. Um, and actually, to be honest, it is more like 60% floral. It doesn't <laughs> have explicit flowers, but it has this sort of tessellation pattern that is flower-like. Um, so, yeah, it's not exactly floral. But anyways, um, so one really extremely simple but yet elemental example of a lattice is called the boolean lattice um, where you have you know two elements uh true and false um and you have um two uh ways to multiply true and false um, and their uh, conjunction which we can think of as and the and operation or um disjunction which we can think of as the or operation um, so I can say, um, my shirt is floral and I have a amber ale uh, by Palmetto Brewing Company, this is out of Charleston, South Carolina, uh, on the table. Um, so I, those are two propositions. Uh, I have that beer and my shirt is floral, but I could say something ridiculous like if i have this beer on the table then my shirt must be floral um, or my shirt is floral um, and these are other you know so with these two basic operations and and or we can define a slew of other possible operations and i think you see this theme occur again and again in lattice theory because this is like the simplest possible example of a lattice that you can think of is you know two states true and false and ways to combine them but this you already do so much i mean all of our uh, computers um are ostensibly they're based on this boolean logic of ones and zeros and this is the simplest possible lattice that you can think of what about a much more complicated lattice like greg was talking about these fences that are you know kind of uh Beautifully maimed and oh, distorted. <laughs> right, right. And you can solve all sorts of problems you never would have imagined uh, just by sort of drawing really gorgeous pictures or, like Han said, by, uh, by building new lattices out of old ones. And, you know, you start with two things, true and false, and then you just take a million copies of them put them in a circuit board and, and see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> and it's really remarkable that, um, you know, that you can do this. Um, 
you can build extremely complicated things out of simple things. And that's, I, I got to say, that's another thing I love about mathematics is that, um, you know, I like the simple because, you know, once things get too complicated and there's too many details, um, you know, I can lose track of them very easily, um, you know, as most people can. I mean, there's obviously extremely talented people out there who can keep track of a gazillion details and nuances of something. But I like to stick with things that are really simple and then gradually, extremely gradually and slowly, uh, build more complicated things out of them. Yeah, and I think that's something that other people really appreciate and enjoy, especially out of, uh, you know, people who maybe don't have the, uh, the same advantages that we have, that we get to just kick back and think about math all day, every day. Um, and who just need to, to understand something, to do something they want to do. It's, I think it goes back to what you were saying before. There's real joy in sharing mathematics with someone, either for pleasure or to help them do something they need to do. Yes, it really genuinely uh, you know, made me happy. So, for example, I'm, so one, one of the projects I'm working on is I'm working with uh, an economist uh, that I actually met uh, as an undergrad at Duke University. Uh, his name is Mike Munger, and I hope to have him on a uh, future show. But we're trying to understand um, preference relations. So this is an example of an ordering uh, that Greg, uh, you know, introduced. So um, a preference relation might be um, a ranking, but it could be an incomplete ranking. So, for example, I might prefer uh, this Palmetto Aero, uh, Palmetto Ale. So this is a beer uh, that I like. I might prefer this to um, a Bud Light, and I might prefer the uh, the Bud Light to a uh, shot of Fireball. <laughs> So those, that's a you know, preference relation I might have. So it turns out, and it's very easy to see this, um, that if I have a collection of alternatives, and maybe they're voters or, you know, objects, uh, products I might buy, and I have um, some sort of preference relation on them. So I might not compare every two things, um, but it turns out that if I require... Um, you know, some axioms. So maybe I require like transitivity. So if I prefer A to B and B to C, that implies I might prefer A to, A to C. So if I have, you know, a degree of restrictions on, you know, what kind of preferences I can have, we get various kinds of lattices of preference relations. Um, so one thing I'm working on is I'm trying to understand what happens when we think of this um, in terms of networks. So one thing that Greg and I both study are um, networks, um, or at least both of I, Greg and I have studied them uh, you know, quite a bit before. And so, so one thing I'm thinking about is, you know, if I have a preference relation, so I have a, you know, a personal preferences on a number of things, and you have a number of preferences on a number of things, um, you know, can we use lattice operations to combine our preferences in some meaningful way. Um, so that's something I'm working on. So anyways, I'm gonna to get to my point, <laughs> is that uh, something that brought me great joy um, as a mathematician is teaching lattice theory uh, to my collaborator, Michael Munger. Um, so he's someone that I really uh, looked up to and I still look up to him as a brilliant uh, you know, philosopher and uh, he's a great economist. Um, but lattices are something that he's never heard of. And, you know, like Greg did to me, you know, he taught me a lot. Um, I tried to teach him a thing or two about lattices and I didn't expect much. I thought, well, you know, he might understand enough so that he can write, you know, his part of the paper and I could write my part of the paper and we understand each other's parts well enough. No, he really took off and he, he, he told me he, uh, you know, watch five hours of YouTube videos on lattices, which I'm not sure if 
there are even five hours of YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> he's uh he's a lattice proponent, a lattice event evangelist now, and I didn't even intend for that to happen, but that's just kind of what happened. So, anyways, this is an anecdote that that you know that happening you know made me really happy. Yeah, I would be happy too. Wow, I think I I, I learned a good word for this. Um, I think an evangelist is a good word. Another one is maven. Have you ever heard the word maven before? No, I haven't. I, a maven is somebody who has arcane knowledge and travels the world sharing that knowledge with others. That is a great word, maven. How do you spell that? I think it's M-A-V-E-N. I'm probably getting it wrong. I think you're probably getting it right, if I had to guess. Well, that's... Um, I enjoy being a maven, and that's an amazing word. And I enjoy being a lattice maven with you. Yeah, lattice <laughs> maven. Um, yeah, so there's a, uh, you know, for the listeners, there's a very uh, famous mathematician who was certainly a maven. Uh, <laughs> and his name was uh, Paul Erdős. Um, and, you know, he's, there's, you know, plenty of other mathematicians that are just as brilliant as he is. I mean... Popular cultures tends to um, kind of pick and choose a few people in mathematics and science that are like, you know, allegedly of superior, you know, brilliance and whatnot. But actually there's, you know, so many, a multitude of people who are so brilliant and so inspiring, you know, in, in my experience. And, and I've only met a very small number of mathematicians. But anyhow... Um, you know, Paul Erdős is famous because he used to travel um, from home to home, you know, at some point in career. And he would, uh, he would knock on the door and he would say, um, my mind is open. So people would open the door and they would talk math and they would feed him. Uh, and he would impart us knowledge, um, you know, on, on the visitors and then he'd leave and he'd go to someone else's house. <laughs> So that's sort of the extreme version of, of being a maven. But I feel like there's a healthy, uh, healthy level of, of mavenness. And I, think, <laughs> I think Greg has really succeeded in doing that. Um, you know, from, you know, my interactions uh, with him imparting his knowledge about lattice theory and getting me excited about the subject that is the subject of uh, my research that I've done um, as a mathematician. Uh-huh. I don't know, Hans. I never had a podcast. I think I may have to pass the Maven crown on to you <laughs> and happily. And happily. Uh, uh, I don't think anyone wants to stay a Maven too long. Yes, that's, that's possible. Um, yeah, being a, a podcast is certainly earning me some... Uh, some brownie points in that direction. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, um, I think we've hit most of the things that we wanted to cover. Um, do you have anything in mind that we want to discuss before we call it an evening? Oh, that's a good question. Oh, let's see. Uh, I think we talked about, you know, uh, uh, let's see. We, we didn't talk too much about your research. I know that you have talked about systems and connecting different lattices together to, to get more information out of it. Is there anything else? I, I would be curious if you had a little bit more to say about that. Yeah, sure. So, um, so lattices are very useful objects for combining uh, data together. And this can all be formalized. Um, so there's this kind of peculiar, I'd say almost like a cult field called formal concept analysis, um, where we can actually define an ontology or sort of a theory of being, um, a definitional theory, you know, based on lattice theory. Um, so it's sort of the whole argument goes like this, that we have a bunch of objects um, so they're things and we want to classify them. So one example I like is sandwiches. Um, 
it's really hard to say what a sandwich is. Is a cheese steak a sandwich? Probably. Uh, is a hot dog a sandwich? I don't know. Maybe. Um, you know, is a quesadilla is that a sandwich? <laughs> <laughs> probably not. But I'm not sure what makes it not a sandwich. Um, so basically, in this kind of ontology, there's two ways um, to define things. One is for each concept, like being a sandwich, to list all the possible, you know, foods, or maybe things that aren't even foods, <laughs> that, uh, you know, qualify as being a sandwich. Um, so that's one way. And there's kind of a duality here. So the duality is, instead of doing that, I can list a bunch of attributes. So, um, there's two, you know, pieces of some sort of bread or starch-like thing. Um, and maybe an attribute is you can put sauces on it. Um, I'm not sure what attributes. So there's yeah, two ways to define what a sandwich is. Name all the possible sandwiches or name all the possible qualities that something has to have in order to be a sandwich. Um, so this is one example where... I can identify a concept such as being a sandwich as an element of a certain lattice. Um, so that's pretty cool. Um, so we can think of ideas and information uh, with lattice theory. And there's a lot more there. So um, another example is due to um, Claude Shannon, actually, which Claude Shannon is um, well known as being sort of the um, first person that was, you know, documented of um, thinking about information um, from this kind of abstract point of view. And that, that might actually be completely wrong, but he's considered the, the founder of information theory, um, which is the principles of which really um, are essential for all kinds of modern uh, all forms of modern communication and, you know, storage of memory on your phone and computer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, compact disks. Um, it's all these ideas are kind of probably not possible without uh, his contributions. Um, so anyways, Claude Shannon in this extremely obscure paper, um, and I actually read this paper and kind of, uh, rewrote it in a nicer format because it was in this very weird um, kind of typewritten format and very difficult to read. So I, um, I rewrote this paper and actually put it up on my website, uh, hosreese.com. And um, anyways, he introduces an interesting lattice um, called the information lattice. Um, and so this lattice is defined using you know, these concepts of, for example, entropy, which is a measure of uh, disorder. Um, and he uses entropy to find this uh, information lattice. You say one thing is greater than another if that one thing contains more information. Um, so this is another really fascinating example of a lattice um, that could be useful, I hope will be useful in uh, information processing. Uh, so back to what like I actually do. So I think about lattices, which can describe data and can combine data together in all kinds of interesting ways. And I also think about networks. So how, how do you store data? Um, how do people communicate with other people and exchange information? So I study both of these things simultaneously. So... One thing that I've done that has been, uh, you know, fairly successful is uh, we've defined a notion of diffusion um, on systems where data is stored in various lattices and data is spread across a network, uh, you know, by passing messages. So individuals in the network uh, combine their information by passing messages. And these messages consist of a particular piece of information. So 
a, a particular element of a lattice. So, so that's something that we've, um, you know, me and my, you know, advisor, Robert Grice, but something I should have mentioned, and I don't know if I ever mentioned this, but Greg and I have the same advisor. Um, further evidence that we are the same person. Right, further. And even though, you know, um, I don't think, but neither neither of us were graduate students under uh, our advisor at the same time. Like, we didn't overlap, but we, that's also evidence for the same person um, in a different, uh, you know, time warp dimension or I think we're also the only two to ever go through the electrical engineering department with Rob. I think everybody else has gone through the math route. Oh yeah, that's something I really wanted to talk about. Okay, um, so Rob um, is uh, a professor of mathematics and he is a mathematician. Um, he did his PhD in mathematics and um, he knows a lot of math, but he also has an appointment in electrical engineering. And kind of because of the um, sort of the different climate that we're getting as far as uh, emissions into the math department and a lot of unnecessary kind of hoops you have to jump through and um, a lot of politics, etc., um, Rob, I think he did the same to you, Craig, but he urged me to apply to Penn through the electrical engineering department, mm -hmm. um, which when I first was told this, I was, you know, I was a bright eyed and bushy tail wannabe <laughs> mathematician. <laughs> yeah. When I was first told this, I was like, engineering? <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know if I would have to design circuits or I, I had no idea what I was getting to, but I knew the research Rob was doing uh, was really fascinating to me. Um, and I was like, okay, I'll do it. I know that, you know, if I do this through engineering, I have a better chance of actually getting admitted and being able to do what I want to do. So I went ahead and did it. But the first thing I did before I did it is I, I think I called you up. I called you and asked you about your experience doing the same thing that I did. I remember that. And I, yeah, boy, that's hard. It's so hard for anybody going into that situation. I'm glad you did it. Yeah. And I, I think I am too, but it, I know you made one comment to me at, at some point that really stuck with me is that when you're making um, these kinds of life decisions about, you know, what career, what job to choose, what graduate school, et cetera, that there's no way you can have uh, enough information to make, you know, a really well-informed decision. And that's sort of the whole conundrum is that you don't know enough about what you're going into until, you know, you actually spend quite a bit of time doing it. Um, so for me, like my first year of graduate school um, was great in some ways, but also wasn't so great. So I, um, I met a lot of really interesting people in the engineering school um, doing the uh, qualifying courses. So there's various courses that are required that you take. Um, one is about the theory of systems and the other is about uh, probability theory, which would be really interesting to talk about um, both of those in future episodes. Um, but I met a lot of great people and I really, we had a cohort of people who were all coming into the program at the same time and we really bonded together um, because we all had to solve these problem sets and study for these exams. So that was really fantastic. But I also felt like um, that I didn't know like how to begin, like mm. how to begin what I actually wanted to do, which was to do research. Like, I didn't know how to get started. And I mm. felt like I was like, um, like I wanted to dive right in and 
that wasn't a possibility. Right. Yeah, and I think a lot of people feel that way. Certainly I did. Yeah. But eventually, I mean, things got a lot better. Um, and um, sort of through really more than anything else through talking to people like Greg, I finally, you know, kind of carved out sort of an area of applied math that I wanted to be involved with. You know, that's more specific than the kind of things that are very, a huge range of things that my advisor has been in, our advisor has been involved in in the past. Absolutely. And, and to second what you said there, Hans, about finding a path forward through talking with people. Um, I remember in my first year of grad school, not at, at Penn, I, I did some school before I went there. Um, but uh, I, I sort of entered bright eyed and bushy tail just like you did. Uh, and uh, I hadn't really had a complete math training, but I started taking these math graduate courses. Um, and in the first week, uh, I just came apart. Uh, and there was, there was no way I was going to be able to keep going the way I w was. And I called my grandmother, um, who I was very close to, um, and uh, she gave me some really excellent advice. I said, Grandma, I can't do this. Uh, I'm going to have to drop out. And she said, talk to Steve. Um, so Steve was my grandfather, so I talked to grandpa. And grandpa gave me another really excellent piece of advice, which was talk to people. Um, when you can't go forward, find the people around you. Um, and I did, and we, we made a study group, and uh, that was the only way I, I had a, a prayer of getting through that program, which I did eventually. Um, and I think that that's true for math, and I think that's true for basically any PhD program and any not PhD program. I think in general in life, um, when you can't move forward, um, looking for the people around you is one of the first things and sometimes the only thing you can do to keep going. Absolutely. And if there's like one thing I really hate, one stereotype I really hate that, um, maybe the public or the media, you know, propagates about mathematicians is that there are these, you know, people who, you know, seclude themselves in their attics and they don't talk to anyone else. And no, that is not, you know, at least the experience I've had and everyone else I know, it's, that is not what it's like to be, you know, a researcher in mathematics or engineering, etc. We solely, you know, depend on, bouncing ideas off of other people all the time and working with people. And, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes we're involved in things and we're not, you know, contributing as much, but other times, you know, we're leading the way. Um, so we have this sort of constant collaboration with other people. Um, and that's, that's what makes it fun, I think. Yeah, it, it, it gives it meaning for me, and okay. I, I think probably for a lot of people. Yeah. Well, this was so much fun, Greg. Um, I'll have to have you on another time. Uh, you know, we can talk about a different topic or, you know, just continue on from where we're going. But uh, I'd like to thank you all for listening to uh, the inaugural episode of Math with Hans, uh, the podcast where... You can have a drink in hand while you're thinking about math. Um, well, thank you, everybody, and uh, have a good evening. Thank you, Hans.